and welcome to the Stem Cell Report. I'm Martin Perra, the Editor-in-Chief of Stem Cell Reports, the open access journal of the International Society for Stem Cell Research. In this monthly podcast, we'll look at highlights from the latest advances in stem cell research appearing in the journal. We'll be speaking to authors to explore the questions that led to new breakthroughs and learn how they have tackled those questions. We'll hear about the background to novel findings, the challenges ahead, and we'll get to know a little bit about the personalities behind the work. Thanks for listening in. Now today, we'll be talking about neural stem cells and neural progenitor cells, their niche, and the aging brain. Now, in the not too distant past, we were taught that there was no cell renewal in the adult mammalian nervous system and no capacity to generate new neurons throughout life. Over the past 40 some years, that dogma has been upended. It's now known that neural stem cells reside in the adult subventricular zone and in the hippocampus. These neural stem cells give rise to transient amplifying progenitors, which then give rise to neuroblasts and ultimately neurons. The study of adult neurogenesis, its function, and age-related changes is a vibrant area of research with broad implications for human health. Our guest today will talk about their new study on the aging mouse neural stem cell niche and a mechanism that contributes to the age-related functional decline of neural stem and progenitor cells. Joining us to talk about this topic, I'm delighted to welcome a team of scientists from the Neural Stem Cell Institute, Drs. Elizabeth Fisher, Julie Zhao, and Sally Temple. Dr. Temple is the scientific director and co-founder of the Neural Stem Cell Institute in Rensselaer, New York, where she oversees the basic and translational work of this institute. She's a previous recipient of the prestigious MacArthur Fellowship Award, also known as the Genius Grant, and a past president of the International Society for Stem Cell Research. Drs. Liz Fisher and Julie Zhao are postdoctoral fellows in the Temple Laboratory. Dr. Fisher obtained her PhD from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. Dr. Zhao is an MD from Anhui University of Chinese Medicine and a PhD from Arizona University. They are the lead authors on a paper published in Stem Cell Reports entitled, 4D Imaging Analysis of the Aging Mouse Neural Stem Cell Niche Reveals a Dramatic Loss of Progenitor Cell Dynamism Regulated by the Rock Pathway. Welcome to you all and thank you for joining us. We're delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Sally, um, you trained in the UK at Cambridge University and University College London. I'm sure uh, many of our listeners would be interested to know what brought you initially to the States and how you wound up staying here. Yeah, so I actually came when I was doing a PhD, I came over to Woods Hole and I did the neurobiology course. This was a wonderful 10-week course. Um, And during that summer, I also met my future husband. (laughs) So between the two of them, uh, there was good reason to come back here. I then did a postdoc at Columbia University and, and got married. So I ended up staying here. Both the science and, and the husband worked out very well. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so Sally, uh, looking at your recent research and that of the Institute, which you direct, it looks like the focus of much of this research is on aging. So the paper we're talking about today is about the aging neural stem cell niche, 
but you're also involved in the Tau Consortium, which aims to understand and hopefully develop treatments for neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's and frontotemporal dementia. In addition to all that, you're also leading the development of a cell therapy for age-related macular degeneration. Do you, like some scientists in the aging field, see common underlying mechanisms in these age-related disorders? And then I'll ask you, do you think, as some people hope to, that we can fix all these problems by cellular reprogramming? So, you know, that is such a great question. Um, I think the more that we study these different neurodegenerative diseases, the more that we see commonalities. And just as an example, if you consider age-related macular degeneration, that's a blinding disorder in which the retina degenerates, in that disease, there are there's the buildup of these extracellular drusen, and there have been uh, studies of the components of those drusen, and they actually overlap a lot with the plaques you see in Alzheimer's brains. So there you see two different diseases, but a lot of similar signals seem to be emerging between the two, and, and that's just one example. I. I'm really hopeful, actually, that by understanding these processes in depth and then looking across diseases, we're going to identify some common mechanisms that mean we might be able to target neurodegeneration, you know, in, of different different types. Um, in terms of your second question, you know, reprogramming is so fascinating because it can reset some of those aging features in cells. You can take an old cell and essentially turn it into a young cell. And I think it's very exciting to contemplate how that might be done to develop therapies. Um, of course, though, when patients present with neurodegenerative disease, they have often lost a lot of tissue. And in those cases, you might need a replacement therapy that like you mentioned, the, the one that we're developing for macular degeneration. So uh, I think the aging process is complicated and you have to think about the tissue target, the disease itself, and the stage of that disease to come up with a therapy. And it won't just be one, right? One modality it'll have to be multiple to address that complexity. Yeah. Yeah. If I could continue with a, a bit of a diversion from the topic of the paper today, but, but a question I'm very interested in, I'm sure many of our listeners will be, uh, you're involved in this trial uh, of a stem cell therapy for age-related macular degeneration. And as you know, clinical trials of stem cell-based therapies for this condition have been going on for a few years now. I think we can say that the treatments are feasible. I think we probably have some reassurance that they're safe, but mm -hmm. I wonder if you could give us your thoughts. Do you see any um, glimmers of convincing indication of efficacy from any of these trials as yet? Uh, yes, and you're absolutely right. Uh, it turns out that pluripotent stem cells can be used to generate retinal pigment epithelial cells at high efficiency. And once that was recognized, the application to macular degeneration seemed like an obvious next step. 
Uh, and of course, it's part of the central nervous system. So these studies have pioneered a lot of CNS transplantation approaches. And, you know, if you look across, there's actually been clinical trials in the UK, the US, uh, Israel, China, Japan. Um, so quite broad, UK as well. And to my knowledge, all of them have found a, a positive safety profile. That's really important, right? These are early stage trials and safety is the most important thing that you're assessing. Uh, I would say though, that from, uh, from one or two, we are seeing glimmers of efficacy, yes. Um, for example, the, the lineage trial that reported uh, some improvement in vision. And that, I think, gives everybody more momentum. And you mentioned that our trial, you know, um, this is using a different stem cell. It's using an adult retinal pigment epithelial stem cell, but everything is in place and we are set to start our clinical trial in a few weeks time. So we're kind of excited about that. That's, that's marvelous. I'm glad I asked. It's great great to hear you moving forward. And it'll be interesting to see how that compares with the, uh, uh, the pigment epithelium from, from uh, uh, pluripotent sources. Definitely. So Julie and Elizabeth, uh, we'd like to hear a little bit about the two of you. Tell us about your background, how you came to Sally's laboratory, and what's the motivating factor or factors behind the research that you pursue? Uh, Julie, first, maybe you. Um. Thank you. So uh, I uh, got my uh, medical degree and trained as a eye doctor in China. I did my PhD in um, a neuroscience program uh, of Arizona State University. Uh, my PhD mentor is Dr. Amelia Galatano. Uh, I'm always interested in the neurodegeneration researches, and I'm also I'm really curious and want to learn more about how stem cells as a, uh, a potential therapeutic method to treat neurodegenerative disease. And, uh, and the projects uh, of developing regenerative stem cell therapies in Sally's lab is really, really interesting. And I feel so um, excited about it. So um, I contact Sally and uh, let her join her lab. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you, Liz. How about you? Yeah, so um, I got my PhD uh, at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. And I worked with Dr. James Lexleiter, where we studied mechanisms of neuroprotection through stimulation of astrocyte energy metabolism. So I've always been interested in diseases of aging and neurodegeneration. I'm particularly interested in glial cells and glial cell contributions to neurodegenerative diseases and, and that kind of thing. And um, what I came to visit Sally's lab, what I was really excited about was the diversity of the projects that were happening, all with a clinical focus. I thought that it had... Um, I mean, it was a broad research program, but also very focused. And I, I just really liked the environment here. So that was really excited to join the lab. Terrific, great motivation. Um, Sally, your paper examines the aging of adult mouse neural stem cell niche. Um, 
but for those listeners who, who, who aren't experts in adult neurogenesis, maybe you could kind of summarize our current understanding of the stem cell niche in the brain and, and the various types of stem and progenitors that contribute to adult neurogenesis. Uh, absolutely. Um, so uh, there have been studies over decades that indicated that new neurons were born even in the adult uh, mouse system, mouse and rat. And uh, there were pioneering studies more than 20 years ago that demonstrated that the subventricular zone, which is the area that we have focused on, that that zone was in fact a neural stem cell niche. It contained stem cells, and those gave rise to new neurons that migrate forward into the olfactory bulb and are important for olfaction and sort of uh, smell memory in these, in these animals. Uh, and of course, you mentioned the hippocampal niche where new neurons are being born and are contributing to memory uh, as well in those animals. Um, so as we have investigated the niche, what we found out is that the stem cells that are present uh, are actually astrocyte-like cells. They express GFAP, glial fibrillary acidic protein. And those cells are in a quiescent state or an activated state. And then when they're activated, they give rise to a transit amplifying cell. We call them TAPs. Um, so those transit amplifying cells divide, and then they give rise to new neuroblasts. And those are the ones that migrate out into the olfactory bulb. Um, so over the years, we've, we've come to understand the important elements of that niche. And we contributed to the finding that the vascular component was really important and that vascular endothelial cells actually secrete factors that maintain neural stem cell self-renewal and neurogenesis, the ability to make new neurons. Um, and then others have shown that the ependymal layer that lines the ventricle, that's right there in the niche, that is also really important source of secreted regulatory factors. Um, and there's even neurons that innovate from other brain areas and regulate that niche. So overall, it's, it's really quite complicated. But the beauty of the SVZ is that it's laid out in such a gorgeous, organized fashion. And we know a lot about how to recognize those cells. So uh, it's, it's really a beautiful model for the types of studies that we have done. Terrific. And do you think we'll, able, we'll ever be able to recapitulate all that complexity in an organoid system in a culture? Absolutely. I have no doubt. I mean, we can actually take these, take that system out now and we can get it to survive. In an organoid system, I, I, we see all of those components of stem cell, progenitor, differentiation. And I think when we bring in new bioengineering approaches to sort of scaffold and control that, bringing in vascular cells as we're also trying to do, I, I think I have a lot of hope that we could reconstruct some of that complexity.
Great to hear. So Liz, um, turning now to aging, um, what do we know about how neurogenesis changes during, a, in, during aging? And, and more importantly, what are some of the fun functional consequences of these changes, if there are? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, and the answer is a lot changes um, with age in um, neurogenesis. So stem and progenitor cell productions decline with aging. Um, and we've previously shown that this occurs more profoundly in males than in females. And this is something that would be more interesting to pursue. Um, and it also complicates the aging process a little bit. Um, the local environment changes a lot. Um, so we also show that that vascular niche becomes impaired with aging, which is again, different in males versus females. Inflammation e increases in the niche with aging. So you get more reactive microglia. Um, some of the uh, extracellular matrix stiffens and all this sort of leads to this reduction in the production of these progenitor cells, which um, leads to reductions in the new neurons that are born and their ability to migrate away from the niche and um, go to the olfactory bulb and in, can impact either memory or olfaction in, in mice. Thank you. All this sounds bad for aging males, but you know, what can, what, what can we do? So Julie, now, now a little bit about the uh, uh, kind of technical aspects of the paper. Um, you focused in beautifully on the niche. Um, why did you decide to study the aging niche? And, uh, you know, I'd be interested to know about the techni technical challenges you faced in, in doing that 4D imaging from whole mount sections of the subventricular zone. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, you know, there are many studies on the young brains, but we decided to focus on the aging process. So our goal is eventually to prevent aging and stimulate regeneration. Um, so it's pretty challenging to do the 4D imaging on the whole mount section of subventricular zone. Um, so first we have to keep the cells alive for you know, two days recording. And to do this, we developed a new culture media and we also uh, modulate the carbon dioxide and the oxygen and the temperature. So all of these approaches allow us to provide a culture condition that mimics the in vivo environment. So in this case, we can keep the cells uh, alive for uh, as long as possible. And also we needed to label the cells in the niche and uh, with, with, a with different flowers. I really wish in the future we can you know, label different more types uh, of cells in the niche. So then study all um, their changes uh, with age. Great, I, I didn't appreciate you actually had to develop a new culture medium, that's, that's not easy. <laughs> yeah, we try many variants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, terrific. So, Liz, now we've kind of gone through the background to the story. Uh, can you kind of summarize for us what you actually found? 
Okay, so uh, in this study, we wanted to look at the motility of the different cells that we labeled. So we labeled the, the neural stem cells and we labeled the transient amplifying cells and we had them in different colors. The stem cells were in green and the taps were red. And so by imaging them over time, we um, examined their motility in the local niche of the subventricular zone. So how they moved in the X, the Y, the Z direction over time. Um, and so in the young mice that we found is that the processes that these cells extended were very um, fine and they went in all these different directions and they did a lot of extension and retraction. They moved in all directions, um, you know, X, Y, up and down, um, away from the vasculature towards the vasculature. Um, and uh, then we took the same home out systems and then we took them from aged animals. And we saw really a dramatic loss of these process extensions and it became these ruffling behaviors. We also saw that they just didn't move very much. These cells were just kind of stationary. They didn't move in any of the directions that they had moved previously. And what we wanted to do was figure out why these cells weren't being as motile as they had been with age. So we mined a recent single cell database focusing on motility in the SVZ. And what we found um, is that multiple aspects of the row rock signaling pathway were altered in a cell subtype specific manner. So the pathways changed in the different cell types along the lineage within the SVZ. And so um, with this information in mind, what we wanted to do was add the rock inhibitor to our young animals and see what happened. And once we added the inhibitor to our SVZ, we saw that these young animals, um, the cells started to mimic a lot of the behavior that we saw in the older animals. Thanks. Well, I empathize with the aging cells. You know, the, the videos are in the supplemental material, but um, I, I was excited to see them because just one look at them shows how striking these differences in motility really are. They really tell a great story. I, and I just wonder, were you surprised when you first saw the differences in those cells in the films? Yeah, it was very surprising. The, the, the motility was incredibly lost in these older cells, and it was just very striking, uh, very striking differences, yeah. Yeah, really, the, 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 the films tell the whole story there. It's, it's quite, quite remarkable. They're great videos. They, they certainly are. So we're going to take a quick break now, and when we return, we'll continue our discussion uh, about neurogenesis in the aging brain. The International Society for Stem Cell Research is a global scientific society that promotes excellence in stem cell science and applications to human health. Our vision is a world where stem cell science is encouraged, ethics are prioritized, and discovery improves understanding and advances human health. To join us, visit www.isscr.org membership. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Report. We've been talking with Drs. Liz Fisher, Julie Zhao, and Sally Temple about their recent publication on aging mouse neural stem cell niche and a mechanism that contributes to the age-related functional decline of neural stem and progenitor cells there. Now, Sally, you've reported that age-related activity of the progenitor cells, as we just heard, is regulated by the Rho-Rock pathway. But I wonder, what modulators upstream of this pathway do you think are driving these changes? And have you looked for evidence of age-dependent changes in these modulators in vivo? Yeah, absolutely. We have thought 
about what might be upstream of this pathway. Um, for example, we've looked at the protein marks. We've also looked at glutamate signaling, uh, both of which can impact the, the, those pathways. And there are indications of age-related changes in those factors in the niche. So it's definitely something we'd like to follow up on. Yeah. Terrific. Uh, Julie, you, you've moved on from Sally's lab, but we'd be interested to know what you're up to now and what your future plans are. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm currently working in a genomic service company uh, for introducing and developing new technology for gene editing. Um, I hope in the future I can still help with uh, developing genetically modified stem cells um, to you know, treat uh, neurogenic, uh, neurodegenerative disease. Um, so this is uh, still what I'm hoping for and I'm going to you know, work on it. <laughs> kind of combining gene editing with your stem cell expertise aimed at therapy, that's, that's terrific. That's a huge growth area, of course. Yeah. Um, how, how about you, Liz, same, same question. Uh, so right now, I'm currently wrapping up a couple of other projects um, on spinal cord injury, so a little bit unrelated, but focusing on my glial cell um, uh, background, and uh, I'm starting new projects involved in the neurodegenerative Alzheimer's disease projects in the lab, and I recently submitted a K99 that should be reviewed like next week. Um, so my hopes are to open my own lab within the next couple of years. Great. Well, well, best of luck with that K99 application. It's, it's a great program for, for making the transition. So again, talking to uh, uh, Sally's two trainees, um, outside of the scientific experience, what are a couple of things you learned in, in Sally's lab that have impacted how you approach science or your careers? And uh, Julie, again, first. Um, so um, from my experience, I feel uh, Sally understands her um, team members about their unique qualities and she knows how to motivate them and help them grow. Uh, I feel uh, sometimes feel um, stuck because um, the projects and the complicated um, uh, questions and Sally guides me to think out of box. Um, she really said, make it simple and creative. This is what I've learned. And I feel I'm really benefited from this way of thinking in both in science and in my daily life. That's terrific. And it'll help you be a, a really great mentor, I'm sure, as you go on in your career. How about you, Liz? So um, what I really appreciated in Sally's lab is the importance of the training environment so the people that you have around you and and she's been really good at establishing a really um, cohesive lab that's really motivating and it makes me want to come to work every day and I feel like that's a really a, been a great training experience for me and a great learning experience and then you know just through the process of writing all the grants that I've been writing in the lab, helping her review papers and writing papers. Another thing that I've really come to appreciate is attention to every little detail. <laughs> 
I am much more of a big picture person and I know that they're both important in science, but um, I think in the past, especially a couple year or so, I've really, really come to appreciate the need and for the attention to detail that, that is really important. <laughs> Yeah, I totally get that. I, I, I could do with better attention to detail myself sometimes. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys, for saying that. Anyways, it's, it's, it sounds like you both had a great experience. doesn't surprise me at all. Um, Sally, you know, we can learn a lot about general biology by using various animal models. And working where I do, I'm certainly going to uh, endorse that idea. Uh, but, of course, they're also used as a model for, for understanding human biology. But when we talk about neurogenesis, uh, we really have to mention the, you know, the recent conflicting findings on neurogenesis in the adult human brain. As you know, there were a couple high-profile papers published around 2018, one reporting that neurogenesis extended late into life, even into the 70s, and the other reporting that neurogenesis is nearly undetectable after adolescence. And as you know, this controversy has continued. Can you tell us a little bit about this debate and, and where do we stand today? Mm. So having been involved in the, the adult neural stem cell field for a few years, there have been quite a few of these debates. So this is not the first time. Um, this particular issue in terms of what is the, the role or the impact or, of continued neurogenesis in human and how long it lasts. Does it last into adulthood? Uh, it's still, as you said, a really active area of debate. Um, so there were several studies that said, yes, new neurons are born in the hippocampus in adult humans, and then others that completely refuted that. And, and of course, you have to think with these human studies, you don't have that opportunity to do uh, longitudinal studies and interventions like you do in animals, right? So we have to rely largely on inspection of postnatal tissue. And um, several of these studies have relied on immunostaining with just one or two markers. And, and I think one of the big questions is whether the markers that have been used that reliably label immature cells in animals, do those markers really reflect the same in the human specimens? Um, and you also have to take into account, and there have been several studies on this, that there are confounding factors like time from death to procuring the sample, uh, the fixation that's been used, the length of fixation, all of this affects the, the signals that you can obtain. Um, but I would add in, I think, around November last year, there was a, a really nice study that instead of relying on one or two markers, um, they actually did a single cell transcriptomic analysis. And they did it in mouse and pig and monkey and human. And what they found was evidence of progenitor cells and new neurons in the mouse and the pig and the monkey, but not in the human case. Uh, and in fact, one of the markers that I mentioned, double cortin, that has been used in those uh, immunohistochemistry studies, they found that in the human, that was expressed at a low level in mature neurons. 
And so that does call into question whether that particular marker is really reliably telling you about uh, neurogenesis in humans. So I, I think I, you know, I think that that is a is a good study, and I also think it's not going to be the end of the story. <laughs> We're going to see more papers come out. Uh, but there's just one point I want to add, which is I, I don't think anyone refutes that you can take cells out of the adult human brain and get them to proliferate in culture and get them to make new neurons and glia. You know, so whether that is happening in the human brain or in some circumstances, um, you know, we, we don't know. The debate is still going on, but those cells are there. And so, you know, what does that mean? Maybe those cells could be used and coaxed into a regenerative pattern that would be beneficial. Um, and you also have to think, well, if the cells are there and they can proliferate, maybe they could go wrong and with age contribute to tumor formation. So I think there's, there's quite a few reasons for wanting to study these cells in human and, and just thinking deeply about the differences uh, between these different species as well. That, that, that's a great answer. And I, I think, um, you know, this whole question of are they there, but just quiescent and yes. can they be pulled into action yes. um, at appropriate times? Who knows? Um, yeah, exactly. And just uh, by analogy, um, we discovered uh, about 10 years ago that there was a dormant stem cell in the human retinal pigment epithelium in adult animals that we can take out of 99-year-old people. The cell is there. And it, I don't think it's doing very much under normal circumstances in vivo, but when we put it in culture, it can be activated to grow. So there, there may be pockets of progenitor cells that are, as you say, dormant, and, uh, and that that in itself is really worth exploring. Absolutely. And, it, you know, mm -hmm. if you think about the pigment epithelium and the stresses it's exposed to constantly, yes. it's hard to believe it wouldn't wear out without some kind of cell renewal. But that's a topic for another day. Okay. I'll just finish up asking you one more question and a kind of yes. a follow on to the human relevance. Um, so you looked at the ROC pathway and ROC inhibitors, as you probably know, are undergoing clinical trials mm -hmm. for a whole range of conditions, including glaucoma, traumatic brain injury, tauopathies amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. On the basis of your data, would you have any concerns about off-target effects on neurogenesis in the patients receiving these drugs? Yes, of course. You know, with understanding the issues we just talked about in terms of whether neurogenesis actually occurs, but, um, you know, ROC inhibitors could impact all sorts of pathways, um, cell movements, um, process outgrowth and, and connectivity for sure. And I, I think it will be important to consider those potential off-target effects. At the same time, with, with any clinical trial, you are weighing risks and benefits. And when you have these devastating, incurable neurodegenerative conditions, then you know I, I think that you have to weigh that balance very carefully and certainly, if there's an indication that they could be helpful, then I'm all for clinical trial testing. Yeah, I think it's worthwhile. 
Absolutely. I'd agree totally. So that's all we've got time for today. I want to thank the three of you for joining us so much and, and for sharing your stories with us. This has been the Stem Cell Report, and thanks to our audience for listening. Stem Cell Reports is ISSCR's open access peer-reviewed society journal for scientists by scientists. The journal publishes research and commentaries that drive the field of stem cell science forward. 